Well, today is, as I said, uh, our first Lord's Day in the new year. And over the past few weeks, we have, uh, I think, rightly heard much about the Incarnation. And as you know, I think we spend a lot of time in the spring preaching about the resurrection. And that's always a blessing. But today, what I want to do, I want to start this new year in a different direction. I want to start this new year off by pointing our attention to our blessed hope by preaching to you about the consummation, the consummation. So today what I want to do is I want to help you set your minds on the hope that is revealed in the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I want to do that because that future hope, I think and I believe, is meant to practically comfort, sanctify, and motivate us in this present age until he comes. I'm not the only one who thinks that. I think there were a few men before me that think that, and uh, they are probably much more worthy to be heard from, and one of those would be Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon focused on the topic of the consummation, the return of Christ, frequently when he spoke to his church, and he encouraged his church to think on this often. And here's what he said when he addressed them, and I think this is really something that we need to always kind of keep in mind is what he's saying here is something that should never escape our thinking day to day as Christians. He said, it's a very blessed thing to be on the watch for Christ. It is a blessing to us now how it detaches you from the world. You can be poor without murmuring. You can be rich without worldliness. You can be sick without sorrowing. You can be healthy without presumption. If you're always waiting for Christ's coming, untold blessings are wrapped up in that glorious hope. Then he quotes from 1 John, Every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Blessings are heaped one upon another in that state of heart in which a man is always looking for his Lord. Another man from church history had words to say about the second coming to encourage the saints of his time. And that man was Augustine. Augustine said this, He who lives and loves the coming of the Lord is not he who affirms it is far off, nor is it he who says it is near. It is he, whether it be far or near, awaits it with sincere faith, steadfast hope, and fervent love. That's, that's what I want to impart to you this morning. I want that to be in our hearts. Whether he is near or far, I want us to be thinking about what our Savior has promised us in his return. And sadly, I don't think that we, as modern Christians, especially American Christians, I don't think we fix our mind on this glorious hope all that much, not as much as we should. So I want to try to remedy that today by looking with you at 1 Peter chapter 1, Verses 1 to 16 this morning, and really we're going to spend a majority or really all of our time in verse 13. Let's read this to get the entirety of the context and understanding here. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1 begins with Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, right? you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, therefore, preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. I want to begin, like I said, in verse 13 and really focus our attention there. And I want to do that because Peter is, is making a transitional point here. You notice that immediately there. The verse begins with the word, therefore, and then immediately he, he goes into comforting through the means of what God has done, right? So right after he has given all these verses, 1 to 12, he's, he's been giving them these comforting truths about what God has promised in Christ. He then commands them to respond to God's gracious revelation that was brought to them in Jesus Christ. That's what's happening here in verse 13. All this beforehand in verses 1 to 12 came to this transitional point where he's saying, look, this is what God has done. Now, here's what you ought to do in response. This is going to happen, he says, at the great consummation, the final revelation of Jesus. This is what you have to hope in, okay? So here's the flow of thought. In verses 1 to 3, Peter first indicates how God calls us to salvation by his sovereign grace. And then he tells us how God the Holy Spirit sets us apart for obedience. And then he tells us we have been washed clean. Our guilt has been washed away by the blood of Christ, God the Son. We've been sprinkled clean. And in verses 4 to 9, Peter then indicates that we are now, because of all that, we are now protected, garrisoned, guarded by the power of God both presently and eternally. And then in verses 10 to 12, Peter indicates that God's eternal plan of salvation came to us in Jesus Christ according to the scriptures by grace through faith and what God has promised to provide. We come to verse 13 after all of that. So here's here's what's happening in 1 to 12. Peter is indicating what God has already done for us 
by his sovereign grace in Christ. And then he's going to say in verse 13, here's my transitional thought. Since he's done all this already, therefore, or since he's done all this, and all this is true, and all this is already promised and accomplished in Christ, here is how you should respond to God's grace. God's grace is also included in his promises to us that were kept in Christ. And so verses 14 to 16 actually say this is how you respond. In light of what God's done, here's why you do what you're called to do. Here's why are you called, you're called to be holy in the first place. You're set apart in Christ. You will be holy. Positionally, you are holy. Progressively, we need to be made holy. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing through the work of Christ as we meditate upon what he's already done for us. So in, in 1 to 16, what Peter is doing is, this is really important to understand any commands of the scriptures. He, he's moving from the indicatives to the imperatives, meaning he, he's moving from what is indicated, this true that God has promised us, to the commands that God gives us. So he's moving from the indicatives to the imperatives. And so that means that the commands in 13 to 16, they flow out of the promises of what God's already done for us in Christ by his grace. So beginning in verse 13, here's what's happening. Peter's telling us what we are to do presently in light of our future promise and hope in Christ. Specifically, he's telling us we are commanded to respond to our promised hope in Christ by, number one, preparing our minds for immediate action in this present age. And number two, he's telling us we need to fix our hope on God's promised full revelation that's coming in the future age ahead of us. Now, let's look at these specific imperatives individually just in verse 13. I want to do that by first looking at 13a. We're going to divide it up into 13a, b, and c. But in 13a, what we see is the Lord commanding us through the apostle Peter to, number one, prepare our minds for immediate action so that we can bring praise to Christ and bring him the worship he deserves. We can bring him exaltation. That's why he says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. This is an important phrase in this sentence. It's an important imperative here. This is a command from the Lord. In light of what I've done for you, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I'm commanding you to do. This is what you must do in order for you to have hope and see transformation take place now and rejoice in it in the future. Prepare your minds for action. The King James phrases it, gird up the loins of your mind. And that basically means bind up or gather up your thoughts, right? Put them together. Connect the dots, right? Put it all together. All that I just said that, that God has done for you in Christ by his grace through his promises fulfilled. Think about this. And think about how this is going to change the way in which you walk out your life presently in this age. Knowing about what's coming in the future age that's promised in Christ. Put your thoughts in order is what he's saying. He's basically saying it this way. Think biblically about what God's promised about what God has accomplished, what God has given us in Christ. Think logically, think theologically, based on what God has done to save us, and then act accordingly. Think biblically about what God has done, and then act on that accordingly. 
Now, the term he uses here, I think we're probably familiar with in some ways. Uh, It's a term that was a a very well-known Jewish term and Roman term at the time. It refers to how a man quickly gathers up the loose ends of his robe with a cinch belt. And when he's in a hurry, he does that to prepare himself either for work or for action or for battle. That's what it means to gird up the loins of your mind, bind up or gather up your thoughts, okay? And this action would have been a very familiar oriental custom at the time because it was also part of the Hebrew tradition during the Passover. When the, the children of Israel would celebrate the Passover, the Israelites ate the Passover. When they did so, they, they would take the, the loose ends of their robe, they would take those loose ends, and they would gird them up. They would suck them up here into their waist, like a belt around their waist, so they could be ready for the flight out of Egypt. That was God's command here. The Israelites were being commanded to do that so they'd be prepared mentally for the action that's coming. The promise that God said, I will give to you freedom, that's coming. Always be ready. Every Passover, be ready. Gird up your loins. Be ready for action. The reason that he did that, the reason he told them that for for years, they celebrated that without being set free, but looking forward to the promise, he did that so they would remember that they are aliens in that land of slavery. And what they needed to do was fix their hope on the one who promised to bring him out. That promise would come in the future. And like those Israelites, I think Peter's telling us that we need to be prepared to flee from sin and focus on God's promised deliverance that has already been made complete in Christ and will be fully completed at Christ's return. You know, saints, there's a sense in which if you understand biblical soteriology, you have to understand we are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved in its completion and glorification. That's future. We're being sanctified in the middle, being saved, right? Being made more like Christ. What this is telling us is he has completed the work, but always be ready for that final Act that he completes when he returns. Saints, we should be very eager for the return of Jesus. Now, all of us are going to see him that are believers here, one way or the other, when we die or when he comes. But we should be longing for the return of our Lord. Because at that point, we will finally see the full declaration, full revelation of who he is and what he accomplished. And he will be praised in the transformation of his people. That needs to be our hope. But Peter knows if we don't have our minds fixed on this, we'll let that hope drift. So he's telling us here in verse 13, you've got to tie up or gird up all these thoughts that you have balancing around in your brains. All those things that distract you or hinder you from seeing your purpose in Christ, your call to obedience and holiness in Christ. Now, I know in the world we live in that there's a lot of things that distract us. Sin distracts us. The depraved world around us distracts us. But those aren't the only distractions. We can become so complacent in our Christianity that we begin to be distracted by good things. Yeah, Jesus is coming, but I'm living like I've got to be comforted here now. So I've got to do everything I can in my life to make my life comfortable. I've got to check my career. I've got to check my finances. I've got to find all my possessions that make me feel comfortable in this world. I've got to have good health so I'll have security here. And what's ironic about all those things, health and money and comfort, we worry ourselves to death about those things. 
We stress about those things. We have anxiety because of those things. So, so even good things, Peter's telling us here, even good things can take our eyes off of serving Christ as we should now and, and looking forward to the promise that he's guaranteed for us in the future. This, this life is transient. Everything's passing away. But this promise is eternal. The promise is more real than anything you can see, touch, or taste. I think that's why in 1 Peter 1.13, Peter not only tells us to gird up the loins of our mind or prepare our minds for action, he also simultaneously commands us to be sober-minded about our life. Be sober-minded. We're to have a mind that is clear. Now, obviously, that would include not being drunken, not being distracted by drugs or things that would cause your mind to be unclear. But I think specifically what he's talking about is have your mind unhindered from all these distractions. Have a sober-mindedness about yourself, about who you are in Christ and what he's coming to do and accomplish in the future. And prepare yourself for battle. Don't have a hindered mind. Have an unhindered mind. Be sober, clear-headed, ready for action like a soldier going into battle. That's the kind of language I think is being tied into this. Peter would have known very well about Roman soldiers. He knew that Roman soldiers geared up for battle and they girded the loins, their loins for action when they did so. And, and they were sober in spirit when they did it. Listen, when a, a Roman soldier is preparing to go into a battle, it is a life and death situation. He didn't just gird up his loins. He stopped and had to think about, this could be my last moment on earth. It was serious to him. He had a sober spirit about him. Now, I'm not telling you to be somber about this, but I'm telling us to be sober, to be thinking seriously about the promises of God and the revelation to come. It's a life and death battle that we're dealing with here in this world. And you may be wondering what I'm talking about. Well, what are we battling against that requires this kind of sober thinking? I can tell you two things. Indwelling sin and Satan's influence. That requires sober thinking. Things that keep us from exalting Christ. Those are two of the major issues that we struggle with. We need to be sober in our thinking about indwelling sin. It's not an excuse to say, well, I, you know, still battling with sin in my flesh. That's why I do what I do. No. You've been called to be holy. It's been secured. This is going to go a long ways in sanctifying your actions and your thoughts. Where you spend your time on the internet. To be sober-minded is what he's calling for here. Now, the command, I think, there in verse 13, the second part of that, to be sober-minded, if you will, 13b, I guess, I think it's directly related to what follows after in verses 14 to 16. Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober-minded, right? And then he says this in verse 14, as obedient children, do not... Be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Quit trying to live like Jesus isn't coming. Quit trying to live like you have the autonomy to do what you want because you're free in Christ. No, that's the way you live when you were a pagan. As obedient children, do not be conformed. Don't be shaped by the passions that used to shape you. But instead, he says, as he who as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So I think verse 13 works in many, many different ways here. It's a call to reflect on God's promises that are already accomplished in Christ. But it's also a present call to sanctification and the setting apart of your heart 
on the right affections to serve the Lord with your life. And if we want to, we want to do that. If we want to honor Jesus, if I asked everyone here today, do you love Jesus? Yes. Hands go up. Do you want to honor Jesus? Yes. Hands go up. Absolutely. Then if you want to do that and you want to understand your calling to be holy, I think you need to think about this soberly. How do you honor Jesus? Walk worthily of him. Magnify him. Not out of legalism, not out of fear of condemnation, but out of the joy of what he's promised. What's he going to do? He's going to reward you for what? For what he did, not what you do. I mean, this is a win-win for us. Listen, you don't grunt out holiness. Holiness is a response of joy from the Christian who understands his position in Christ and the promises to come. So if we want to honor him presently, I think we need to dwell on what he's doing in the future when he returns. That's what this text is, I think, drawing our minds to. And I think the Apostle Paul believed that and taught that as well. Turn with me to Titus, Titus chapter 2. We hear a very similar thought here contained in verses 11 to 14. The Apostle Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting, waiting for our blessed hope. What is that hope? Paul tells us, the appearing of the glory of our great God, Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Does that sound like legalism? Not at all. He's saying, look, this is your blessed hope. This is your blessed hope. He has redeemed you. He who redeemed you should transform you. That's what Paul's saying. The grace of God is what trains us, reflecting on the grace of God that will come to us in the future in Christ as well as presently. It's what's going to train us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Saints, Paul says this is our blessed hope. Part of the reason it is our blessed hope, it is a sanctifying hope. When you fix your mind on Christ, you set your mind on Christ, you have sober-mindedness toward what Christ has accomplished, you, you will pursue holiness out of a joy-driven desire in your heart for what he has granted you by his grace through his sacrifice. You've got to remember, saints, that God's grace in Christ, it came at a great expense. It was Jesus who shed his blood to save us. So it's Jesus who girded up his own loins, and he was sober-minded in the battle that he went into, and there he conquered sin on our behalf. Therefore, we should take this gift seriously. We should take God's gift of salvation and Christ's promised return and reward seriously and soberly and with joy as we meditate on it. And this is... This, This seems to escape us because we live in such a comfortable environment here in America. Not that I want to live otherwise, all right? But because of our comforts and things that we have so easy access to, we don't often think about and long for the return of Jesus. But if you spend some time today meditating on what he's done and what he's 
going to do when he comes, I promise you, your hearts will be sober-minded and your actions will be transformed. When Jesus comes, it's going to be a fearful and glorious day. When Jesus comes in his victory, his final victory, his display, the consummation of all that he's accomplished, when he comes in victory, he's going to be dressed in battle array, and he's coming to rescue us from this world, this present age. And he's coming to judge the world according to their own righteousness. Look at Revelation 19, verse 11. The Apostle John writes, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Lagos of God, the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What a glorious day for the believer. What a frightening day for the unbeliever. When you think about that day, here's, here's what's going to happen in your heart. One of two things. You're going to be excited for the vindication of our king, right? He's coming. He's coming in victory. He's coming to rescue us. We're going to be with him forever. The other response is, this is terrifying. This is frightening. I'm not ready for this day. This is a frightening day to the unbeliever. If that's the way you feel this morning, I have good news for you. This king that is coming, he is also a savior. And he is coming to save, secure, finalize all that he has accomplished. But he has offered through his blood complete atonement for your sins. Look to him and believe. Repent of your sins. Turn away from the wrath to come by looking to the one who conquered it for you at the cross. Because that day is coming. That great and last and final day is coming. That day is coming more assuredly than your next breath is, saints. It is coming. How do you view it? What do you do when you think about it? How does it change you? Let me ask you a question as believers here. When was the last time you truly pondered, thought, meditated on this glorious day to come? When was the last time you prayed for this glorious day to come? Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. If you really believe that Jesus is going to return... And he's coming to reward those he has redeemed in the completion of our salvation. It should change the way we witness to people today, shouldn't it? If you really believe that in that coming to reward us, he's also coming to judge the quick and the dead. It should change the way in which we live as we engage with unbelievers. If you really believe and have hope in Christ's return, it should make us more passionate about glorifying him now through evangelism. Through telling the lost about the Savior who redeems sinners like us. I think if we really thought about these things, there's a lot of things in our lives that would change. I think a lot of trivial pursuits we go after will fade away. When you really, really consider what he's done, because the trivial pursuits are really, they're really just privileges that we have, but they're not necessities. We live like they're necessities, so therefore we're enslaved to them. And I think that when you understand in light of eternity what God has called you to do here on earth, 
thing, instead of pursuing trivial things, the spiritual will predominantly overcome and lead you into different kinds of actions. So maybe we as Christians need to think about this coming reality more seriously. If you really believe in this, maybe you really seriously need to think about how much you love the lost. Are you telling them about Jesus? How will they know unless they are told? And how will they know without a preacher? Tell the lost. If you really want to honor Jesus, that's one of the greatest ways in which you can do it. Evangelism. If you want to honor him now and look forward to that day with great joy, pursue glorifying him through evangelism. Tell the world Jesus saves. He redeems wicked, depraved people. He saves us by his grace through his great sacrifice. And he's coming back and he's coming back to reward us and complete this redemption. And we'll see it at that great day of revelation. That's what Peter's calling for here. In, in 1 Peter 1.13, the latter half here, see, we are seeing God commanding us again through Peter to prepare our minds and change our actions by, secondly, fixing our hope on God's promises. Fixing our hope on God's promised full revelation that is to come in the future through Christ when he returns. In 13, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. I think most of us probably know what the word revelation means there, but we don't often think about it. We think it's just the title of the last book in the Bible. The word revelation is apocalypsis, the uh, uncovering, the revealing. It's the full picture of Jesus. And he's saying, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the unfolding of who Jesus is in the future, the day of Christ, the second coming, the last day. Set your hope on that. There's grace to come. There's grace. There's favor from God to come in the full redemption of our bodies. There's so much grace there. On that day, Jesus, this is the greatest of all graces, Jesus will reveal his full glory and our final salvation. That's our hope. You know, we we are so disheartened and frustrated and even angry, like Justin said this morning, when people mock the name of Jesus and misuse the name of Jesus, and we want him to be honored. On that day, he will be. Everyone will see, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. They'll all see it, and we'll rejoice in it. It'll be the day of our final salvation. And the hope that Peter's talking about there in 13c is that this hope is not, not, a, it's not a wish. It's a confident expectation. It's assurance is what it is, right? And it's assurance because this hope is based on the completed work of Christ that was done in the past. And this hope is built on God's future promises in Christ to come. So here's what's going on. The already of of God's saving promises that were fulfilled by Christ in the past, they are what secures the not yet, right? We're not not fully redeemed yet. They're, They're what secures the not yet promises of God that are coming in the future. It's the already promises that secure the not yet, okay? So we know that God is faithful. He has accomplished his promises in Christ through his redeeming work. But he's also promised us future blessings in Christ. They're they're not completed yet. They're not full yet. They will be, though. 
And we're secured by this as Christians. And the reason there's security in this is because all the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. And that's why Peter commands us here to put all of our hope, our full assurance, in the promised completion of our salvation that will be fully manifest when Jesus returns. And that's why we ought to fix our minds. What do we fix our minds on? We fix our minds on the eschatological promise of our final and full salvation in Christ. It's going to be fully revealed when Jesus returns to claim his victory on the day of consummation, which is what we're reading about. It's also spoken about in 1 Thessalonians 4. Go there with me. We see it there as well. So we're to fix our, our minds on this eschatological promise because it is meant to transform us presently as well as in the future. Look in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. The apostle writes here, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I mean, those are encouraging words. They're encouraging words because on that day, I, I truly believe this, I believe that Jesus will return visibly, audibly, and powerfully to the earth. Then the dead in Christ will be raised and the living will be transformed and united to follow Jesus as he descends in victory to judge the world and restore righteousness to this planet. Now, saying that, I know there's eschatological differences among us, but not when it comes to the return of Jesus. And so I don't say all these things to spark an eschatological debate among us, all right? Not why I'm saying this. Lots of different views. But I'm saying this to spark a flame in your heart that will transform your life to live like you believe our Savior and King is truly coming again. And he is worthy of all of our praise now and on that final day. That's why I say that. He is worthy. So ask yourself this morning, how often do you truly set your hope on this final day of salvation? How often? Once a week? Once a month? Once a year? Or every moment as you begin to think about what he's done for you? I think we need to think about it often. First Peter 1.13 commands us to focus our minds on this. Focus our minds on all that God has promised us in Christ. And so to do that, we have to understand what, it's, what it is. What is this that God has promised us in Christ? Well, one of the things he's promised us includes the hope of a resurrected and glorified body that is like Christ. A body that will be fully transformed by Jesus' work that he has accomplished in the past. A body, a body that is, well, this is amazing, a body that is designed to magnify Jesus for eternity. Listen, if, if I get one, one moment 
of magnifying Jesus in a day, I'm thrilled. I mean, I acted like Jesus there. Wow, you know, I mean, that's, that just thrills my heart. And the reason it does is because I struggle with indwelling sin like the rest of you. There's far more of that than there is magnification of Christ. But on that day, he will change us for eternity. No more will you struggle with indwelling sin. I don't even know what that's going to be like. I mean, frankly, most of you won't even know me in heaven because I'm so struggling right now with sin that, you know, you're like, oh, wait, I think that's Randy. He looks different now. He acts different now. It's amazing what he's going to do in the world to come. First Corinthians 15, first Corinthians 15, we see this, we see this promise to us beginning in verse 49. Just if we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul does the same thing Peter does here. He tells us all these great promises of God that Christ has accomplished for us, and then he says, Since you know all that, here's how you ought to live. Don't be rocked to and fro. Don't be distracted by the world. Be immovable. Be always abounding in the work of the Lord because of what he's done. It's his spirit that is at work in us. And one day that will change us internally and externally. This is part of our future hope. So do you rejoice in this? And listen, I've had a back issue for the last two weeks, three weeks. And I'm not rejoicing in the return of Christ just because my back hurts and I want a new body. That's not it, all right? That's a really lame thing to say or think, okay? I look forward to this because there will not be any remaining evidence of sin in my body. That's our future hope. If you hope in that, here's my question. If you hope in that, if you look forward to that day, you long for that, is that hope sanctifying your actions presently? Huh? Yeah. If you really want that in the future, why, why, why isn't that changing you presently? It should be, and it can be, when you put your minds solidly, soberly fixed upon what Christ has accomplished. What both of these writers, Paul and Peter, both are saying here is they're telling us this about our future hope. This is, this, this is the telos, the end, right? This is the end purpose. This is the God-ordained purpose for your very salvation, that you be made like Christ, And be conformed to his image progressively. One day it will be completed. You'll be transformed completely to be like the Holy One. Jesus Christ himself. Your Savior. Your King. I think that Peter and Paul both are telling us this because this promise is is meant to to give us present motivation for sanctification. This is our present hope. 
in sanctification. And this is also our eternal securing hope. We will be made like him based on what he did, not anything we could ever do. My good works mean nothing. I can't obtain God's favor in this. Jesus has accomplished it already. He's going to consummate it in the future. He's going to bring it to fruition. That is a sanctifying power, I think, over our excuses for sin. When, when Jesus is revealed in his full glory, here's, here's what's going on. We're going, to, we're going to be made like him. We're going to be made to see things the way he sees things. We'll come in line with God's perspective of our sins on that day and see what Jesus truly did at the cross, taking our place, receiving our wrath. And we'll understand it and we'll fully rejoice in it. We won't hide little pockets of sin in our heart. It'll be fully eradicated, exposed, for we will see as he sees. On that day, the remains of sin in us will be fully eradicated by the transformation that he completes by God's grace according to his promises in Christ. I mean, what a day that'll be. What a day that'll be. Sam Storms puts it like this. Jesus will come bathed in radiant splendor, enveloped within an atmosphere of indescribable brilliance, surrounded by the ear-piercing praise of angels and saints, scintillating light shining from his eyes, irresistible power pouring from his hands. None will deny his beauty or escape its transforming energy. That's who we're looking forward to. Church, on that day, we will be given new bodies that are finally capable of dwelling in God's glory and capable of magnifying his grace forever that he bestowed upon us in Christ. And we we will, on that day, we will finally, what we long for, what do we long for in prayer? What do we long for in song? What do we long for in preaching? We want to experience this revelation of Jesus. We want to understand him more. We want to testify to his greatness and his grace on that day we will experience that in its fullness we'll experience face to face present and eternal fellowship perfect fellowship with our savior and king completely unhindered by our sin i have no idea what that'll be like but i'm ready for it i'm longing for it and that's when we need to fix our minds on this i think if we truly fix our mind on this great hope it will practically sanctify our lives. If you're trying to be sanctified by a list of rules, forcing yourself into spiritual disciplines, you're missing everything that God intended to bless you with in this gift. Sanctification is just the process in which God progressively transforms, chisels off, shapes us, makes us more and more like the Savior. It's not some sort of list you have to go through to endure until the Savior comes. No, it's something that you want to do because the Savior will come. You desire this. I want to be like Jesus. I mean, what does the bulk of your repentance sound like? Lord, I did that. I'm sorry. I want to turn from that. I want to be more like Christ. I want to do what Jesus would do in this response to this person or this action. That's what you're praying for. He says, if you fix your mind on me, that will come much more frequently in your heart and transform your actions in your life. We need to fix our minds on this promise that God's given us in Christ at the full revelation that he will bring to us on the last day. We need to fix our minds on the already but not yet in Christ. We need to do that because this hope was designed by God to sanctify our hearts and transform our lives, not just in the future, but presently, until he comes or until we go home.
So I'd ask you to pray that we would live in light of that hope as a church daily. Pray that we would live in light of that hope as we are commanded both there in 1 Peter 1, 13 and one more place in 2 Peter chapter 3. I'll conclude with this. 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 14. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. Saints, let's let's pray According to what Second Peter there is telling us. Let's pray something like this. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and quicken me to do your will until you come. Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this revelation, this promise, this hope to come. Your promises are yes and amen in Christ our Savior. We thank you for the assurance of that that you've given us in your word. We pray, Jesus, that, that you would use these words to conform our hearts and our minds and our lives and our actions to, to your will, to, to rejoice in you as we pursue what is, what is obedient. Lord, help us to understand that, that you have given us all that we need to magnify your name here on earth. And one day, though our bodies still struggle with it, one day you'll remove the struggle from us and you will allow us to, to dwell in your presence. We thank you for that. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would just give us comfort from these truths and that you would apply these truths to our hearts and transform our lives. And that today we would spend time truly meditating on all that you have done for us, God, in Christ. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.